This morning we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. When we finish this week, we're going to go to Genesis next week. So I'm excited to preach through Genesis for you. Today we're going to talk about the charge to preach God's word. And I thought, hey, if we're going to preach God's word, we may as well start to start beginning, right? Let's start at Genesis. We have looked at the scriptures over the past few weeks to see what they say about themselves. The scriptures testify that they are trustworthy, that they are authoritative, and that they are the source of life for us. And that only here do we learn about God. Now, we can learn about the Lord from each other, of course, and from preaching. But this is our baseline. This is the foundation for everything we say about God. Anything we say about God that contradicts the word, that is false. The scriptures bring life where there's only death. And they bring hope where there's only despair. The word of God changes us as we get into the word, as the word or rather gets into us. It changes our lives and shapes us. And so with that in mind, Paul, speaking to Timothy here, his son in the ministry, it makes clear why he says exactly what he does and the way he says it. So remember that this letter to Timothy, this is 2 Timothy, it's after the first one. This is also last Timothy. There is no other letter to Timothy. So this is his last words to his son in the ministry. And why does people choose their last words carefully? And so here at the end of this letter, as Paul is writing to his son in ministry, he chooses his words very carefully indeed. And so let's read in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will in turn be turned away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand as a church the the magnitude of the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. And may we all understand that the word of God is paramount in our lives. May we take it seriously. And may it have an effect on us in everything we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in his last words to Timothy, he tells him and he charges him to preach the word. That's the thing on Paul's mind as he's going to be executed by Caesar. They cut off his head. He knows his time here is short. A lot of the other apostles have already passed away. And he wants to make sure that the gospel stays right, that the church stays healthy, and that Timothy doesn't stray. And so the last thing he tells him is preach the word. But he doesn't just say preach the word. He could have said just preach the word. He doesn't just say that. He solemnly charges him. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus, he he means business. 
I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is coming to judge the world, the living and the dead, preach the word. Jesus himself, the cross, the Almighty, will judge us on how we preach the word. James 3.1 says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Paul doesn't mince any words to Timothy. James doesn't mince any words to his congregation either. Teachers will be judged by a stricter standard. Jesus Christ himself is going to judge me on how I deal with his word. One day I myself will stand before the Lord and give an account for every single sermon I ever preached. And it's getting to be a bunch of them. Not counting the ones to my kids. A bunch of sermons I'm going to be held in account for. And so the charge to preach to the church is quite serious. And there is a stricter judgment for those. So I, I don't want this to be an, a discouragement. Don't think that you can shirk teaching to avoid this judgment. Because we're all going to give an account for the stewardship of the gifts that we've been given by God. Every single one of us. doesn't matter what our gift is. Instead of being a demotivation to, to teach, to preach the word. And by the way, he combines preaching and teaching here in that passage. I want it to motivate us to be better teachers, better preachers of God's word. To those of us who are Sunday school teachers, our community group leaders, and especially us elders, who conveniently mostly have Sunday school duty today, I mean uh, children duty today. <laughs> Y'all can laugh, I'm just teasing. I didn't do this to them on purpose. We need to make certain that all the time we understand the word of God and that we are teaching it as best we can. That means reading the word. That means listening to the word. It means listening to the preaching. And above all, this is the most important. It means asking a lot of questions, both of yourself, of the text, and to other people. We have to be constantly learning. One of the greatest things you can be when you grow up is a teacher of God's word because then you will have homework the rest of your life. You will never be able to slack off ever. It's wonderful. You will always be learning and always be growing or you will not be doing the job that you're called to do. So all of us, every single one of us who teach the Word, and you say, well, I'm, I'm not really a preacher. Well, it also applies to teachers. And you say, well, I'm not really a teacher. When you talk to somebody about Jesus, you're teaching them something. Now, I believe that the elders of this church and Sunday school teachers, we're going to give an account for the things that we do. I have zero doubt about that. But nobody's off the hook. We might get a stricter judgment, but you're still getting a judgment. So make sure you know what you're talking about. And if you have this sinking feeling that you don't know what you're talking about, then get in there and study. And ask a bunch of questions. Call every day at the church. I was reading today, I don't know what this means. Every day I will tell you what that meant, if I know. It's my job and it's your duty and we need to be good soldiers of Christ Jesus and study this word. So the first thing we need to know is that one day Jesus, this is amazing, one day Jesus is going to split the sky open. I don't even know what that looks like, but it's going to be wild. It's going to be like a lightning bolt that comes from the east and the west, and the trumpet of God's going to sound, and the earth is going to shake, and the dead are coming out of their graves, and we're going to fly up into the air, and then Jesus is going to say, hey, I need to talk to you about your sermons. <laughs> that is going to be, he's going to be talking to me. So... Maybe y'all get to watch as I uncomfortably squirm under the gaze of the Lord as he reveals 
everything that was in my heart when I preached, how I erred, and hopefully what I said that pleased him. Hebrews 4.12 says that we will be laid bare, naked before the Lord. We will be exposed. There is no hiding. Every single word Jesus said that we've ever spoke, even idle words, will be held to an account how much more the words that we teach or preach. So, do not neglect your study. Do not neglect the word. We're going to be judged by Jesus Christ, the awesome one, at whose face the mountains flee and tremble. And also... We're supposed to be ready to preach anytime. So it's not just about, hey, I get six days to load up for my one Sunday school class on Sunday. It, life doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you have to teach on the spot. I know someone in particular that learned that this morning. We have to be ready all the time. Because you never know what somebody's going to ask you. Just the other day, uh, my daughter and I were in uh, a, where were we? Oh, we were at a video game store. And this lady, was she was sort of upset a little bit because her big boss man had come in and said, and she told him about the store and all this stuff. And then at the end before he left, he asked her what she thought the secret to life was. And she said, tacos. And it had hurt her that she had said such a thing. And then she said to me, what would you have said? And I thought, man, you just asked the wrong guy. And I thought, how deep into this do you want to go? I said, I would have shared my faith. I would have shared my faith in Christ that that is the secret to life. If he was serious. Now, if it was a joke, I might have said tacos. But if somebody says to me, what do I think the secret of life is? I would be like, how long do you have? (laughs) We can do this fast or slow. But you don't know when stuff like that's going to happen to you in your life. You have no idea. And since I go in the game store all the time, maybe I get to pick up on that conversation and we'll get to explore what the secret to life is because I feel like that's not an open door. <laughs> we talk about sometimes the Lord will open the door for you. Sometimes he kicks it down like he's the SWAT team coming in your house. and It's like if you don't say something here, you are worthless. Be ready. To be ready in season and out means to be prepared when times are ripe for harvest. Sometimes in the life of the church, individual churches, the church as a whole, it seems like every time you preach the word of God, people are changed, lives are changed, people are being converted, people are being saved, and it's crazy. You can read about it. I've been in services before where the spirit of God saved a bunch of people, and it was amazing. And then sometimes nothing seems to happen. So we have to be ready in season and out. When the harvest is ripe, I mean, this is like this in gardening. Sometimes the green beans are ready to pick and sometimes they're this tall. That's just how it is. So you've got to be ready when the harvest is ripe, but you also got to be ready when it's time to plow. Sometimes you just put your hand on the plow and you try to make a straight row so it won't be all curvy and get in your other rows. And it's not as easy as it sounds. Sometimes it's lean. Sometimes it's plenty. It doesn't matter when. You've got to be ready no matter what. Not only is it a time of lean and sometimes it's a time of plenty, but there are times when it will be more difficult to preach and teach the Word of God and hold your faith because the culture will be more hostile. Now, I want to say this, absolutely. There is never a time, never a time, when you will preach the Word of God or teach about Jesus and the fact that He is the only way to heaven, that only through faith in Christ, dying for sins, risen from the dead, can we be saved. There's never a time when you will say that that someone won't be upset by it. Never. Because nobody wants to, in their flesh, wants to submit to God and follow Christ. They don't. So we'll always experience seasons where people will 
recoil at the gospel and not treat us well. But there's sometimes in some places where it can really cost us. doesn't matter when it is. We have to preach the gospel at all times. And there's three things we have to do while we're teaching and preaching the word of God. It's what he says here. Look at this. Preach the word, verse 2. And then you may have in your Bible a little semicolon. That's, that's just a clue for you to pay attention. And me. Three things. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort. Now, if two out of three of those are no fun ever. I, I don't know. If you enjoy rebuking people, that's messed up. It means you're immature. I'm going to tell you why. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Bible is like a double-edged sword. I have never wielded the Word of God where it did not cut me to. Never. The sword of the Lord, here's my thought. It don't have a handle on it. It's just a blade. If you go to hitting somebody else with it, it's going to cut back. Jesus said, whatever you measure to somebody, he's going to measure it back to you again. I have never, ever, I'm not joking, I'm serious. I have never rebuked anyone where the Lord has not rebuked me. Never. In preparation for preaching and for the sermons that I preach, I have never cut anyone where I was not cut. Never. And if you do, you ain't holding it right. You're not letting it do its work in your life. When we teach, the older you get, I hope, the wiser you become in the God's Word, the more sharp your rebukes might be, but the more gently you can deliver them because you know the pain. You know you've been there. So the Word of the Lord is a sword without a handle. You can't handle it without getting cut yourself. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't have anointed people that are above rebuke of his word. Every single one of us live and labor under this word. So reproving and rebuking are no fun because every time I see someone who has sinned or is doing something sinful, and I have to go talk to them, I think about the one million times I've been in their spot. And I dread saying it because I know what their reaction is going to be if it's anything like mine. The first thing that happens when you get poked with the word of God is usually your pride swells up. It's a weird effect. You get rebuked soundly and you go, like a bullfrog. And you start talking about other people, what they've done. One of the surest ways you might be under the conviction of the word of God is you're sitting there thinking about who this sermon's really for. (laughs) Nobody laughed. Everybody was like, oh, man, I do that all the time. I, like, I wish so-and-so would have been here to hear that. At one time, I was standing in line to shake the preacher's hand because we do that, and I heard a guy say to him, man, I wish so-and-so was uh, here to hear that sermon. He said, I don't know why. I was talking to you. <laughs> and I was in line, and I did not say that. I said, thank you, Pastor. <laughs> but see, that guy probably forgot, but I remember when he said that. I remembered that. And so maybe the rebuke wasn't for him. It's landed on me like two, two dudes back, two people back in the line. I was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm going to file that away and use it on somebody one day. It's true. The Lord's talking to you. There's no reason for him to be talking to your neighbor. He's not here. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So it's incomplete without the third. Exhort means to encourage you got to be encouraged. Listen, you sinned this week. I prayed about it. 
I sinned too. It's sad. It really made me sad. I, almost, I can't stand it. I hate it that I sinned against the Lord. But right after I remember I sinned against the Lord, I remember that he saved me. And I get happy again. He is gracious and kind and good. So what's that pride bubble swells up and the Lord pops it with a sort of his word. And after a while you come back and say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I was wrong. <laughs> it's good to confess. Cleansing from the soul helps your pride. Maybe next time you get poked, the pride bubble won't swell up so much. We'll be more humble people. That's what it takes. No one is perfect. Any teacher or pastor who thinks they can wield the word of the Lord like a cudgel doesn't realize they haven't had any humility or conviction in their own life if they do that. And what's, what's beautiful is God's word is true. And so even if someone abuses the word of God, you can still be changed by it. It's not a matter of the messenger, it's a matter of the message. So even if it's doing them no good, it might do you some good. I've known people who are converted under terrible charlatans. People who fleece the flock of God for money. And people I know, good people, converted under their ministries. Because the word of the Lord is not... He can, as they say, hit straight licks with crooked sticks. It is true. So God, Jesus Christ, will judge us on preaching the word. We've got to be ready to preach the word at all times and teach. I say teach because when I say preach, you think you're exempt, but you're not. And three, the work of preaching God's word. I like what he says here to Timothy in verse 5. He says... As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And earlier he said you have to teach with complete patience. Complete patience. We are always to be sober-minded. Sober-minded means being of even temper, not flying off the handle. It doesn't mean just not drunk. It means that we're always... If you come to me one day, you should expect me to respond the same way as you would any day. Now, all of us have our ups and downs, that's true. But overall, we ought to be even-killed folks that folks can speak to about serious matters and we can give good answers. We need to be sober-minded people, not flying off the handle. People need to be able to count on us for consistency. And we have to endure suffering. How's that? We need to be prepared to suffer. He tells them to endure suffering. This is the work of preaching the word, is being prepared to suffer. And I'm not talking about only persecution. We, we can and must suffer some persecution. It won't be to the level that others might experience it, but we might experience some pushback on our faith here. But we suffer not just because of persecution, but because the Lord calls us to do difficult things. He calls us to do difficult things that we suffer in. What difficult things has God called you to, I wonder? If there is no suffering for Christ's sake in our lives, if we spend our lives pursuing that which is easy instead of that which is right, then we're not bearing the cross that Christ has called us to. So there are hard things that Christ calls us to. There's things that God has called my family to that are difficult. That we don't have to do. But we do have to. And we have to walk through it. And God changes us through the crucible of trial. What difficult thing are you doing for Christ? What are you enduring for Him? Not for you. We will put up with a lot for us. 
What are you enduring for Christ's sake? And if you are enduring a great burden for the sake of Christ, maybe it is someone you're taking care of that maybe you could put that off on someone else or maybe uh, it's a health issue or financial issue or, or, or you're volunteering your time somewhere. There are a million things that you can volunteer for that mean nothing but suffering in a lot of ways and taking up of your time even down to what money you give to the church, what money you give to other ministry, how much time you spend with others, how patient you are with their phone call, how much time you're spending with your children. Not just trying to be an average parent, average friend, average whatever, but actually investing your life in those placings. How are you doing? What are you doing for Christ's sake? You say, well, you make friendship and all that stuff sound bad. Well, no, I don't mean it that way. There are great rewards to it. There's great joy and encouragement. But do you think it was super fun for Paul to be floating around in the ocean all the time trying to get from one church to the other, even though he loved those people, even though while he's in prison he's still writing them letters to make sure that they're behaving, even though on the way there were dangers of robbers and his countrymen, he got beat several times, he was stoned almost to death, his ship wrecked and he floated around the ocean for a few days, you say, that doesn't sound so bad, that's because you never floated in the ocean for a few days, that is like the most miserable time I can imagine, can't hide from the sun, can't hide from the elements, just floating, hoping you're going to hit shore, I guess, that is awful, all of those things because he loved greatly the word of God and the people of God. What has God called you to where you're suffering? And Paul calls him, Paul calls Timothy and us to endure it. For if we suffer with him, here comes encouragement. Get ready. Oh, it's good. It's Babatender, it's good. If we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. <laughs> That's good. There's a reason why there will be... Uh, that Christ himself will dry our tears. Because they're real. And they're suffering here. If you can go into heaven tearless, you haven't served. I don't think those mean just tears of sorrow only. And then he tells us not only to endure suffering, but do the work of an evangelist. I like that. He didn't say use your gift of evangelism. Use the gift of evangelism, Timothy. He could have said that. It would have made perfect sense with a lot of things we read in the Bible. But that's not what he says. He said something very specific. He said, do the work of the evangelist. To me, I don't know about to you, but use your gift, do the work, doesn't sound the same. What does do the work mean? Do the work means you've got to put in your time. Do the work means it's labor. Do the work means it's not easy. Do the work means you don't always want to do it. Monday's coming tomorrow. I don't know if y'all realize that. <laughs> But tomorrow morning, your alarm clock's going to go off, and not many of us in here are going to be like, oh, yes. Oh, thank goodness. The weekend was so long. I've been sitting here waiting, waiting for my alarm clock to go off on Monday morning so I could run back to work. I'm excited. hate the weekend. (laughs) Is there anybody here that does that? If so, I'd like for you to counsel my children to go towards that profession when they grow up. Nobody does that on Monday. We say Monday. Here's how we walk in Monday. It's like, you don't even talk to people. All you're looking for is the coffee ready. Is the coffee ready? Where's the coffee pot? I don't even care. Hey, David, hey. Sometimes I greet David. He's not even here yet. That's how Monday is. Nobody gets excited about that. So when he says do the work, that's what he means. That means when you're sitting there in GameStop and somebody says something, there's lots of people standing around and you're like, I'm fixing to talk about Jesus and it's going to be awkward. 
or thinking about opportunities to share with people you know. How can I do this work? How can we do this work? And as a collective, not just you, how do we do this as a church? There are lots of lost people in our city, lots of them. Unfortunately, this is part of the work, there are lots of lost people in our city who think they're saved people. That makes our job really hard because they think they're fine. They're watching cartoons right now. And they're like, ah, I, I went to church. We went to church last week. We're tired. It's rainy. Let's stay home. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who dropped out of church today is lost. Heavens, no. But a lot of them are. If you talk to them about the gospel, they know it. How are we going to get those people to see that they're sinners who need to repent? Oh, we can't. That's the problem. Only the Lord can. So part of the work of the evangelist means praying, Lord, God, save people. I'm at my wit's end here. I can't do a thing. You must do it. Save them for Christ's sakes. So do the work of the evangelist. Are you working as an evangelist? Are you? Man, everybody's ready for this one to be over. Do the work of the evangelist. Get convicted about it. Say, oh, I've got to share Christ, and I want to do it in a winsome way, and I don't want to do it in such a way that uh, I actually repel people from Jesus instead of being a savory aroma to the Lord or of the Lord. So the work of preaching the word means enduring suffering, being sober-minded, doing the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What is your ministry? This is encouragement. You should have one. Get you one. Do something for Jesus. Don't think ministry means just like my job. It can be a lot of different things for a lot of different people. It can be anyone from... Uh, there's spiritual gifts in here talks about the gift of helps. What does that even mean? I don't know. Maybe moving chairs for when we have food in here. Cooking. Hospitality, opening your home for people. Administration. Some people like to make spreadsheets that are helpful and can understand them. It's a gift. It is not mine. But it's some people's. And you need to use that ministry for the Lord and fulfill it. You don't know what the Lord will do. We have no idea. Fulfill your ministry. And why? Here we come, encouragement. So we've got to know that Jesus is going to judge us for preaching the word. We've got to know we'd be ready at all times. We've got to do the work. And finally, there's a reward. This is good. Paul's about to die. Like literally. Verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He's talking about there the priests in the Old Testament taking the drink offering before the altar of God and pouring it out as a sacrifice. Paul says, I'm poured out. I'm done. I have given everything I've had to the ministry of Christ. I'm in prison now and they're going to kill me. He says he's fought the good fight, he's finished the race, and he's kept the faith. I hope that that's your last words. I hope that if, even if it's tomorrow and I'm on the uh, 431 and I get hit by a car and I'm dying, I hope I can think I, I finished the race, I kept the faith. be a good way to go out. And if I could talk to my kids, I'd tell them not to be afraid. Run the race. Because, because... There is laid up for you and me and Paul a crown of righteousness. He gets excited. He says, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will reward to me on that day. Good for Paul, right? But, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. 
There's a crown for us all. Who love his appearing. It doesn't only mean, by the way, when he returns. I don't think. I'm going to love that. Super love that. But just the fact that he came in the first place. I love it that he appeared. Came incarnate as a man and bore my sin. And by the way, up here we saw us about at the end days. They're going to gather together for themselves. It will tickle their itching ears and fix the, and, and preach towards their passions. That's also not distant future. That was happening before Paul even died. People always have wanted to hear what they want to hear. One of the hardest things you will ever do in your entire life is to train yourself not to hear only the things you want to hear. It's hard. If you do it, you will, not for me only, but also those who love his appearing. You know, First John says that the hope we have of his appearing is what sanctifies us. When he appears, we will be as he is. And with this hope, we are sanctified. First John. I love his appearance so much, and you should love his appearance so much that just thinking about it makes you a better person. Thinking about the fact that one day Christ is going to come and he's going to say, whatever he says, it shakes the world. Wake up, get up, here we go. It's over, yeehaw. I don't know what Jesus is going to say. It's going to be the shout, though. Could be yeehaw, I don't know. And we're all going to fly to heaven. I'm excited about that. If you think about that every day, you'll be a better person. Because you'll think Jesus is going to come back, it could be today. I got to do the work of an evangelist while there's still time. We got to make hay while the sun shines. That's the southernism. Here it says work before it gets dark when no one can work. Do the work while it's the day. Today is the day of salvation. And one day when we get to heaven, after Jesus does whatever he does to judge all my sermons and everybody else's, he's going to say, here's the crown of righteousness. Here's the robe of righteousness. Here's all this other stuff I've given you. I'm going to be a mess. It's going to be wonderful. And I'm going to see you there too, I pray. Receiving your reward for the ministry you fulfilled there. And as he's given you your accolades for all the stuff that you helped this church do, I will be so proud for you. And so thankful also. So remember that this week, every week. This is our little manna from heaven this week, given to us by God's word. So that we might walk rightly and do rightly. Teach the word as we ought Teach them. Teach whoever you get a chance to about the beautiful love of Christ that rescued you from sin, took you out of the miry clay, and set you on the rock. That's our joy. And that's what Paul, as he was dying, wanted Timothy to do. And here we are. He must have did it. Preserve this word for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that all of us here will take seriously the charge to preach your word. I know that not many will be held to the judgment that I myself and the elders will and then the Sunday school teachers, community group leaders, but we all teach. We all model for others the word of God. So, Lord, help us to fulfill our ministries. Help us to take the word of God seriously. Help us not just to be teachers, but to be taught. Help us not only to teach, but to be teachable. Help us to listen and to learn and to change and grow. And Lord, we pray that the love of Christ will envelop this community through our hearts so that they might come to Jesus if they don't already know Him, that we might be an encouragement to those other brothers and sisters in their churches who already know Him. 
Lord, be with us and help us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.